Amedaena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Getting work experience while studying in school has become more accessible, especially in the software industry. Safia Abdallah, open source maintainer on the Interact project, talked about her experience as an independent consultant while she was in college. We also talked about Safia's contributions to open source software since she was a first year college student. At the end, we explored topics around data science and tooling, which is something Safia is currently working on. Before we begin, I'd like to thank DigitalOcean for being a sponsor. DigitalOcean offers a simple and developer-friendly cloud platform. It makes managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple options for your cloud infrastructure, and access to the infrastructure services that you need for scaling. DigitalOcean also has a great community, and they provide a lot of tutorials that are super easy to follow. This helps you stay up to date on the latest open source software and frameworks. To get started on DigitalOcean for free with a free $100 credit, go to do.co slash women in tech. That's do.co slash women in tech. Thank you. Safia Abdallah is joining us today. Safia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be on. Thank you. Today, we're going to be talking about several topics like open source, data science, consulting. I want to begin with consulting. I know that you did independent consulting while you were in school. Can you talk about what this means? Sure. I can talk a little bit about how I went about it. Generally, when you come in as an independent consultant, a company will hire you, in my case, to work on a particular project for a certain amount of time. And generally, they want you to do that because you've got a skill set that's valuable to them or something that they're missing on their team. And I did that for two-ish years while I was in college as a way to pay for school uh, during the school year. And then just kind of as a way for me to develop my technical skills in a more real world scenario while I was working on getting my computer science degree and just kind of to like meet and network with people. And it kind of started out of necessity. I just needed a way to pay for school and kind of once I had the ball rolling with it, I kept doing it until I kind of wanted the stability of a full-time position and just went on to explore other things. Exactly. And that's a great idea because like you said earlier, you were applying skill set that you already had, but you were also growing. What was the existing skill set you were applying and then in what ways did you grow? Yeah. So the skill set that I brought to the table and that several companies were interested in leveraging from me was a lot of my experience in technical writing. At that point in time, I'd kind of developed, I guess you could call it a reputation for my technical blog posts. And so companies were interested in having me on as a technical writer to produce documentation and written content for them. And then I also had experience with a particular popular open source project. And so companies would hire me to help them implement it in their internal organizations. So in both cases, I was leveraging my soft skills with technical writing and then just general technical knowledge that I had in these projects that I would work on. In your opinion, 
what makes good documentation? Oh, that's such an interesting question. So I think in the end, documentation is a form of writing. And what makes good documentation is exactly what makes good writing. Is it, do you understand who the audience is of the content that you're producing? And then do you understand what their goals are? And then how much of your documentation is catered to those goals? And so that's one thing I always try to have in mind whenever I'm writing documentation to start out by establishing who's going to be reading this and what do they want to do, and then build out documentation that's going to help them complete that goal as fast and as high quality as possible. The same way that if you're writing like an essay or a story, you're always thinking about your audience and whether you want them to be entertained or informed and so on. You mentioned that what helped writing technical documentation is the fact that you were actively writing. Can you just mention what sort of topics were you exploring in your blog? Oh, I did a ton of stuff. I was blogging. Um, some of my most popular blog posts were I would do kind of deep dives into code bases. So I would read the code base for things like Git or Node or other popular languages and tools that were open source. And I would just kind of annotate it and talk about what I was finding out. And it was a really interesting kind of topic to cover for people, I think. Um, these kind of annotated code reads. And it was something that gave me the chance to like apply my own unique voice to something that anyone had access to, which was open source code. And I think a lot of people saw that and were really intrigued by it and excited to collaborate with me on writing projects around it. So you mentioned that while you were doing independent consulting, it consisted of two main things. There's a technical writing part. There was also some open source work. What does open source mean? Can you define it? Yeah, so I guess there's like the technical definition that open source is code that is licensed under a permissible license. And I think that's like maybe the more technical definition for me. Open source code is code that is publicly available and that people collaborate to maintain and develop. And it's code that is available for everybody to jump on and start working on. It can often be the bedrock for other projects and private code bases and, you know, things that end up being full-fledged companies. But at the end of the day, it's really code that is out there that people across the world are working on improving and maintaining together. Throughout your time working on open source, what have been some of the advantages that you see in this space? I think the advantages that come to you as a developer is the ability to learn and address a lot of unique and interesting challenges that you might not get at a day job or at university. I started contributing to open source when I was 18 years old, so just about a freshman in college, and I've been doing it ever since then, and I would say just the ability to always be learning new things and be interacting with senior engineers or people who've just been doing this for like 30, 40 years and really know their stuff and to learn from them is a really unique opportunity. And then I think for it in like a more traditional sense, there's also the chance to like build out your resume and show people how you can code and what you can code in a way that's like very public and open and out there because your commits are available for people to browse online. And then there's also genuine friendships that come out of it. You meet people that you collaborate with and you end up really hitting it off and you become friends and they become your mentors and 
it becomes like a support system for you. So I would say those are the big advantages for working in open source. There's definitely some disadvantages I can get into if I want to be a Debbie Downer, but those advantages are pretty huge. What are a few of those disadvantages that you have noticed? So I would say in general, the biggest thing is that there's a huge time barrier to open source. Not everybody can come in and contribute to an open source project on a regular basis. You kind of have to have either, you know, no day job, you just don't work a nine to five and you can dedicate a lot of time to your own interests. You have to have either the ability to spend your after work hours working on open source. Maybe you don't have like kids or family to take care of or other pressing needs. So you definitely do need to have the privilege of time to work in open source. And I think that's a big barrier to entry for some people. And then I think the second, especially for somebody like me, I tend to be like a very obsessive person in a good and bad way. By that, I mean that when I get involved in something, when I start a project or when I start working on something, I can't stop working on it. And so you definitely, if you're that kind of person who can't put things down, you definitely can burn yourself out by spending way too much time working on it and not setting clear boundaries and making sure that, you know, open source isn't taking up all of your free time. Um, and that's, you know, one thing that I definitely had experience with is burning out a lot because I was dedicating so much of my free time to open source and not necessarily stepping back and taking a break. But I have been better about that recently. So I would say those are the two big advantages. You need a lot of time. And if you do have the time, you need to be sure that you're not spending all of your spare time on open source. You started contributing to open source when you were a freshman in college. Do you remember some of your early contributions? I do. My first contribution was actually like a single character change in a Python project within the data science ecosystem. It was literally that. I added one character to close a bug that was open on their issue tracker, and that was my first contribution. It took me about three days to get that one character change in because I was trying to figure out how to clone the repository and how to run the test suite they had in their code base and how to verify everything and all that. And then also just work up the nerves to submit the pull request to this project and get it reviewed. So all in all, it took me almost three days, but got, you know, reviewed, approved, and merged. And I did one pull request and then I did another. And then once I got the hang of it, I just kind of kept going and didn't stop. That's great. I've, I've heard similar things or recommendations where people say, if you want to start contributing to open source, you can make a change to their documentation or like, what you were doing, you were changing a character or a, fixing an easy bug. Is that what you would also recommend people that don't really know where to start and they're overwhelmed? Yeah, I would recommend that. I think I also, I might have written it up in a blog post or just a Twitter thread, but I also talked about other ways to quote unquote contribute to open source that have nothing to do with the code base at all. Like if you do want to get involved in open source and say you're using a really interesting open source package to do something. You can contribute to open source by writing a blog post about that project or by going to speak at a meetup about that project or just like sharing about it on Twitter and stuff like that. That still counts as being a part of the community and contributing because you're helping build out interest in that project. 
and grow its community. So before you even get into the code base and start changing things, there's still ways for you to get involved in the community by writing, by speaking, by blogging, um, by just sharing about open source in your network. And then once you are ready and you are interested in starting to become a code contributor in particular or a documentation contributor, then usually there's easy bugs for you to address. And if a project is well organized, they'll generally have some sort of tag that is, you know, new contributor friendly or for beginners or something like that, where you can find stuff that's really easy to work on and approachable for beginners. I know on the project that I maintain, we have a new contributor friendly tag. And we also have a pretty active Slack community where we will help you out if you're new to get your first pull request in. And this first contribution that you talked about earlier where you changed the character, was this on a project that you were using? Was this software something that you were using? Yeah, so the project that I made my first contribution to is a Python package called Pandas. It's used heavily in the data science field for data analytics, data cleaning and munging. And I had been using that project and that tool for about a year and a half before I made a contribution to it. And then I ended up going in to make my contribution. So you're talking about Pandas, which is a data science tool. You've worked in this field, data science. Can you explain what this encompasses? Oh, that's a tough question, because I think in a lot of ways that question is still being decided or the answer to that question is still being decided. From your experience? Yeah, for me personally, I would say that data science is a discipline that exists at the intersection of social sciences, statistics, computer science, and then artificial intelligence. And the goal of data science is to extract more knowledge from information, which I know is very general, but that's the best way that I've been able to phrase it in a way that isn't trendy or clickbaity, but accounts for what I think the goal of the field is. It's just us developing new methods and techniques for extracting knowledge and information about the increased amount of data that we now have. And if you like look at some of the techniques and methodologies that are being applied in data science, a lot of them have their roots in like statistical methods that were created almost a century ago, but are just being applied or tweaked to accommodate the large volume of data or the interesting specificities that occur when you're dealing with large quantities of data. But at the end of the day, I think it's just combining the disciplines of social science, statistics, computer science, and artificial intelligence into one field. And I'd also actually say there's a little bit of like design in there too and design thinking. But yeah, that's how I would describe it in my words. From your experience working in this field, what have been some interesting things that you have been able to discover by using data science? There's been like practically interesting things like trying to figure out what kind of action a user might take based on their previous browsing history or existing data that we have about them, and then using that prediction to cater our user experience to them. Those were some of my favorite projects, kind of like predictive cues in web applications based on a user's previous engagement with an app. 
And then also using data science to explore things about how people interact with each other in their social networks and what you could learn about who's likely to be engaging with who, who might dislike who in a certain social network, who might be collaborating more frequently with each other, which groups of people are going to be more productive in a particular session, which groups of people are more likely to be more social, things like that, kind of like social network dynamics. So that tends to be where my I tend to get really interested in data science, figuring out how people interact with the world and with each other using the data they produce through their web interactions, through their social interactions. Do those learnings, for example, about web applications translate to modifications of the user interface or showing new options in the UI? Yeah, sometimes it was very directly that, like we would determine based on the way that this person used the product over the past five months, they are this kind of user and we put them in this bucket. So the UI elements that we show on the page are this particular set of buttons that we know they most likely interact with. And the like things we have on the landing page are these particular data and visualizations. So just kind of like tailoring the user experience to a person's user persona and discovering that user persona in real time through the data they generate. Can you talk about the tooling that's available for data science? So I would cluster it into a couple of different sections. I think a lot of the tooling that exists right now is, so I think most of the work that I have been doing is pre-production development of machine learning models. So this is like before things are like polished up and deployed out into the world, I'm mostly working on the back end, developing the actual algorithms and techniques, figuring out what kind of features we want to use in our data to train our model, figuring out what kind of heuristics we want to use on it, things like that. So in those interactions and in those like phases of my work, I tend to use really interactive tools. So things like Jupyter Notebooks, I like to use and edit Jupyter Notebooks in Interact, which is one of the open source projects I help maintain. And a lot of interactions with Python libraries. So I mentioned Pandas earlier. That's another tool that I use. There's Scikit-learn, which is a pretty popular Python package. That's another one. And then I'm also a huge fan of the command line and just going into my shell and using tools like grep and awk and all those like really battle-tested and time-tested command line tools to do some quick munging on data. And that tends to be my kind of toolkit when I am working on developing a machine learning model prior to hitting production or large scale. For those that are not familiar with Jupyter Notebooks, can you explain what this consists of? Sure. So a Jupyter Notebook is kind of an interactive document that allows you to have prose text as well as executable code cells within a single document. And so what you can do is you can write out scripts or analytics in code cells that you can execute in a real environment, and then also write annotations and notes. And the end result tends to be a literal notebook where, not a literal notebook, but a notebook sort of interface where you or another person can read the prose you've written describing the code 
that you've written and then also execute and read that code itself. So when you're working on, you know, training a machine learning model or tweaking with the feature set, that tends to be a great tool to use because you can kind of write out your thinking and your approach and then write the code that explains how you came across that thinking. Exactly. So it's something that's very interactive, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's increasingly becoming a really popular model, not just in data science, but in like computer science education and other places where people want really interactive ways of engaging with their code. Exactly. The other application that I've seen of this is for creating a mathematics textbook where you have equations and things like that, and you can even run those as you're reading this textbook. Yeah, and you can kind of visualize things, and it makes it fun because you can actually see what you're reading about. Exactly. What have been some of the bottlenecks that you've experienced in data science? Is there something that you think, oh, this is probably going to improve in several years or something? So I wouldn't call this a technical bottleneck. I would call it more like a social slash educational one. I think it's become a really popular field as of late, and it's really hard to discern what people are talking about because it's trendy and like the thing of the day and what you should focus your learning on because it's like foundational knowledge. So I think that's one thing that I tried to or that was hard for me at the beginning was figuring out, you know, what is foundational knowledge? And there's like the base that you have to develop of your knowledge around computer science fundamentals, statistics fundamentals, some like experiment design fundamentals. Those are kind of like your bedrock for a data science knowledge. And then there's new topics and new trends that come up because the field is progressing really rapidly that you have to stay up on. So I'm hoping that in the future, as a community and as a discipline that's being taught to people, there will be a better distinction around the fundamentals that everybody needs to know and then the things that kind of come and go or are evolving trends in the field. And then the other is just um, more equitability and inclusion in data science. And I think this is something that's starting to be discussed more often now, but I mentioned some of the experiences that I had with data science where it was being used to tailor people's interactions with web applications or being used to understand things about people's behavior. And whenever you're building something that is about people or for people or targets their behavior in some way, you need to make sure that all people are involved in the creation of those machine learning models and techniques that you're using. And this is mostly so that you make sure you're not doing things like building models that have an excessive amount of bias that end up reinforcing a lot of prejudices that exist in the real world, but with the power and speed of a computer. So that's one thing I hope will improve in the future is people will be more cognizant about making sure that they involve a diverse set of individuals in the creation of machine learning models and that they're more conscious about the biases that might come up that we are teaching machines in the process of training them to do certain things for us. Related to this, you've worked with several nonprofit organizations that are focused on bringing and retaining minorities, for example, women in the tech field. What are examples of some strategies for retaining minorities in technology? So for a long time, 
I had this philosophy around diversity and inclusion that it was mostly about making sure that you hired more minorities and more women and more of everybody who's underrepresented and that's how you were gonna solve the problem. But as I've kind of advanced in my career and had more experience with different issues around diversity and inclusion in the workplace, I think the solution is really about making sure that you are removing the individuals in your organization who are barriers to building an inclusive and collaborative environment. Building or removing people who are bad actors, who are hostile, who are aggressive, who are more likely to abuse individuals in general, but minorities and underrepresented individuals in particular because they are such easy targets. So I think like the easiest thing a company can do to improve diversity and inclusion, it's kind of a negative process in that you have to remove the bad actors in your organization, not just an additive process where you're adding in more minorities into your group. And then I think the second most important thing is pay people well. I think this is at this point a pretty well-known phenomena in the tech industry in particular that women and people of racial minorities tend to be underpaid in the industry. And the easiest thing to do to retain people is to pay them what they're worth and pay them for the talent that they're bringing to their organizations. And then the third thing is if you do have a diverse population within your company already, make sure that those who are underrepresented are being advanced to higher positions in their career. One of the things I tend to see happen in organizations that claim to be diverse and inclusive and say, oh, 30% or 40% of our engineers are underrepresented minorities is you tend to see that a lot of those underrepresented minorities are actually at lower positions within the company. They're occupying junior roles. They're occupying non-leadership roles. They're not getting past a particular level in the company and advancing to places where they have real responsibilities, where they're in management, where they have decision-making abilities, where they can affect the organization in tangible ways. They tend to be stuck at this bottom rung and never advance beyond it. And so just being cognizant of the biases that might prevent people from being promoted in your organization, especially if they are underrepresented minorities, and making sure that those biases are addressed and that people are being promoted for their talents and their accomplishments to roles where they have the ability to grow the organization and make important decisions in the company. Exactly. Those are very good points. Before we finish, I just wanted to ask you real quick about this podcast that you're co-hosting with other people called Book Bytes, which is targeted at developers. Can you explain what this is all about? Yeah, so Book Bites is a fun podcast where I and my co-hosts will grab a book. It can be a very technical book or a less technical book around the technology industry and read it chapter by chapter and get on a podcast and share our experiences and our perspectives on it. And so if you're interested in expanding your knowledge in tech and also just hearing different viewpoints about technology and trending topics and things like that from panel, then Book Bites is the podcast for you. And also a great place, of course, if you're a bookworm. And you said you do a mix of very technical books and non-technical, right? Yeah. So sometimes we will do a book that's heavily focused on like a programming language or certain methodologies. And then we'll do a book that's maybe like the history of computers or something like that. Well, Safia, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for having me. It was great to speak with you as well. Thanks to DigitalOcean for being a sponsor of the show. 
go to do.co slash women in tech to get started for free with a free $100 credit and get your application on the cloud. That's do.co slash women in tech. Thank you.